Welcome to this month's episode of the Cordell and Cordell Men's Divorce Podcast, a combination of views, news, and tips relating to topics and situations relevant to guys going through divorce. For more than two decades, the domestic litigation firm Cordell and Cordell has championed the rights of men and fathers before, during, and after divorce in a family court system that is notoriously biased against them. In this special edition of the Men's Divorce Podcast, we spoke with co-founder and principal partner Joe Cordell during Cordell & Cordell's 25th anniversary year about the impressive growth of his firm and why the mission to protect the rights of men and fathers is so important to this day. All right, Mr. Cordell, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Your firm has been around for 25 years. Uh, take us back to 1990. What inspired you to go off on your own and start your own practice? Well, I had graduated from law school at the University of Texas. I had come to St. Louis to take a job with a, a large firm, downtown St. Louis. And I thought that that was what I wanted to do. And I was, in fact, hired to work in the, what's called the transactional side. And I just found that I was not happy there. Um, I wasn't thriving there by any means. I wasn't motivated. And I, they were probably no happier with me than I was with them. And it wasn't the fault of the law firm. But I, I finally, thankfully, when I left there, did not look for another job. And I found out, for me, the secret was, was to find an opportunity to build, to create my own firm. And I know that's not the answer for every lawyer, but for me it certainly was. And for the first time I had more enthusiasm about what I was doing than I could ever have imagined. I mean, back, in fact, the funnest years of my life were those early years of building Cordell & Cordell. More fun, in fact, than today, even though we're more successful today. But when I first went on my own, it was, it was truly a matter of generating enough business to pay the light bill and to pay my rent and those, those essentials. My wife and I, Yvonne Cordell, she and I had met. We met through our church, but we had not married until shortly after I'd left this job. So at the time we married, I was unemployed, and she had recently gotten a job as a lawyer. So soon thereafter, um, I began focusing on serving uh, Christians in the Christian community in St. Louis. When I left Lewis, Rice, and Fingers, I uh, went out on my own, and of course I didn't have many contacts here in St. Louis. I had already met who the person, the woman who's to become my wife, which was Yvonne, and um, it was a time when there was a lot of uncertainty. I was engaged to get married. My wife, who is a lawyer, had a job, had a corporate job, but it was in a nearby city. So I decided that rather than seek a job, I was going to go out on my own. And I initially focused on the community that I was familiar with in St. Louis, and that was the Christian community. Having recently come to St. Louis, those were really the only contacts I had with the people I came to know through my church. Um, so that was, that was kind of the focus of uh, Joseph E. Cordell and Associates at the time, was to serve the Christian community. And over the course of time, that practice thrived. I mean, I had a radio show, and I had a, new, a newsletter, and I was appearing at, tra at, at various gatherings and, and shows and whatnot, conventions. And over time, I developed enough of a practice where I was prepared to hire a lawyer, and it occurred to me that why should I hire a lawyer when my now wife, incidentally, when Yvonne is working a job somewhere else. So it just made all the sense in the world for Yvonne to come to return back to St. Louis, which was in, she'd been a couple hours away. And so she and I essentially became Cordell and Cordell and, uh, and began focus on serving the Christian community. So 
over time, though, I have to tell you that I would not have anticipated that the practice would evolve into domestic relations. Uh, at the time, I thought that we'd be doing a whole lot of estate planning, maybe some litigation relating to, to lawsuits and whatnot, but I didn't expect that it would be mainly family litigation. But that's kind of what evolved over time, was I looked around me after I had been practicing, serving the Christian community for about four or five years, I realized that I was serving primarily, uh, or I was doing primarily family law. So over time, I realized that uh, this practice that it intended to be a general practice serving uh, Christian families became a domestic relations practice. So um, at that point, I more or less embraced that fact. I decided that I was going to be the best at what I could be there. And Christians did have sort of unique needs and unique perspectives regarding family matters, which divorce for them you know, is very grave, more grave perhaps than to the secular community. So, uh, so there, was, there, there was a sense of purpose and fulfillment in that role. But finally, over time, I found that as, as I practiced more in domestic relations and saw more family matters, uh, I started to notice what was occurring more and more among my male clients. And, and I developed this sense of mission regarding serving guys in domestic relations cases. And in fact, it was one case in particular that was so horrendous that it, it convinced me that what I wanted to do was focus on serving guys as the mission of Cordell and Cordell. And that was a case where um, the judge was determined to award custody to mom. It didn't matter that we presented evidence, social workers, psychologists, that mom was a hopeless alcoholic. So bad, in fact, that we had evidence that, that um, a neighbor had appeared at the house and found mom passed out in the living room. The kids, at that point, we're talking very young kids, two, three, four, five years old, or three kids in that age range. And, and yet, in the face of that evidence, the judge was determined that he was going to give custody to mom. So bad was this decision that sh shortly thereafter, the Division of Family Services pulled custody when they found out that the children hadn't been fed, that there were other things that were going on. This occurred within the months after this, this hearing and the award of primary custody to mom. Just an outrageous set of circumstances. And, and that was what it took, I think, for me to make that decision that I wanted Cordell and Cordell to not simply serve guys, but to be all about serving guys in domestic relations cases. So your firm is known for their focus on championing the rights of men going through divorce. Do you exclusively represent men? No, we don't exclusively. Uh, that might be illegal, in fact. Uh, what we do, though, is we, we focus our practice on serving guys. To the extent that, that women come to us, we're happy to represent them. But, but as you might imagine, with our marketing and whatnot and our reputation, um, not a lot of women come to us. I would estimate that maybe 2 to 3% of our clients are women. But when they do come to us, of course, we serve them as we would our guys. Now, Cordell & Cordell has been around for 25 years. Uh, how has a firm grown over that time? Just tremendous growth. I have to tell you that I did not foresee the level of success that Cordell & Cordell has. Some people approach me as if this was some genius on my part that, oh, how did you foresee that you could take this firm and build it into a national firm focused on serving guys? And I have to tell them that, that you know, this is not a product of an, of an investment or a marketing decision. It's the product of simply 
a passionate decision that I made years ago that I wanted to focus on serving guys and and you know all the rest is just gravy now you recently opened an office in London uh, what made you decide to step into foreign territory one thing that became clear to me years ago was that the sort of complaints that guys have in the United States are not unique to the United States the the gender stereotyping that has occurred and the neglect as a civil rights issue that guys have experienced, especially as it relates to family courts, has not happened just in America, it's happened in Europe. England came to my attention in a very graphic way. I think it was about 15 years or so ago. I remember picking up a newspaper and seeing a picture of a guy nude on top of a bridge in London. And, and of course there were helicopters around and, and there was news cameras and whatnot. And, and so I read this story, and apparently this was uh, by this radical men's rights group in an effort to get attention, which of course it did, to call attention to the fact that guys were being discriminated against in custody battles in family courts in England. So that stuck with me. And, and since then I've given interviews to various periodicals in Europe where they're questioning me about men's rights. So it's a very burning and pressing issue that I think that, that countries in Europe as well as in the United States and other places, you know, have to come to grabs with. Now, I would imagine that practicing law now is much different than it was in the 90s. Uh, how has running a practice changed and how have you adapted to those changes? Law practices now, I think, have become much more business conscious. And, and I mean that in a very positive way, meaning that at least as it pertains to Cordell and Cordell and some other firms I can think of. But among the top tier of firms, I can tell you that there's been the opportunity to dramatically improve. Where there was a desire to be better in the 90s, there often were not the tools to be as good as perhaps the leadership of a firm might have wanted it to be. Uh, there also were constraints on, on business practices that were just pe peculiar to this highly regulated industry, quote unquote, which is the practice of law. And I think many of those regulations accrue to the disadvantage of clients. Um, some of those have been relaxed, so there are more opportunities to function more as a business now. And, and customers are, are uh, treated much better by, by companies that are in a more competitive environment, that have, have, they're rewarded for being better at what they do, and that allow consumers to get information about the quality of that performance. All of that serves the interest of the consumer. And I can say to you that today, more of that information is available for a variety of reasons than that information was, say, 10 years ago. And are there any specific innovations Cordell and Cordell has pioneered that helped contribute to the firm's success? Lots of innovations. I mean, I, I have to tell you that Cordell and Cordell has been very innovative. And we're innovative not so much because we're determined to be, although we want to be the best we can be, but it's of necessity. The bottom line is that the legal industry is a notoriously um, unprogressive, a notoriously conservative um, industry in which there's not a lot of attention given to customer satisfaction, to kind of those best ideas that have evolved in virtually every other industry in the Western world. I mean, you know, business schools have long taught these basic principles of, of making clients happy and improving the quality of your services. But those ideas are foreign to the legal professions and to a great extent to the medical professions. What we've seen in the medical professions is what that's resulted in. You know, there's been a revolution, and now those doctors who at one time were inattentive 
to their customers, to their patients, now find themselves working for MBAs who do understand those principles. Well, I think that the legal profession has to acknowledge and has to wake up and, and, and determine that it needs to be much better and that it can be much better, but it has to be willing to adopt those practices that good businesses have. So Cordell & Cordell has looked outside the legal profession. We've looked at those companies that, that are famous for customer care, Southwest Airlines. We can think of many examples where, where companies succeed because of their, their radically customer-centered focus. So we've been taking those ideas like client satisfaction reviews, practice quality standards that we impose, um, using processes and systems. Processes and systems, virtually anybody listening to this broadcast would say, yeah, in their workplace, of course we have processes where we've captured the way you do something and you, and you try to do it that way time after time to assure quality. That is, I can assure you, a radical idea in the legal profession. So that, that among many others, are, are examples of things that Cordell & Cordell has reached outside the legal field, and, and in many cases, I'm sure, we're the first in the, in the field to adopt that. So you now run one of, if not the largest, domestic litigation firm in the world. Uh, is there anything in particular you can describe the rapid growth and success? I think success for us probably is attributable to, of course, multiple factors, but, but I think what would have to be mentioned was, is one, our willingness to change, our willingness to continually uh, search and troll for opportunities to, to capture technology, to obtain tools that allow us to be better than we are. So that, that has been hugely influential, I think, in our success is being on the cutting edge of, of available technology. I think also our, our willingness to develop systems and processes those things that are so elementary to virtually every other business are novel in the legal profession. But, but we found that it's only by developing those processes and systems that we can assure that our attorneys do the best they can do time and time again. It's the way that you capture your organizational learning so that subsequent customers and clients can benefit from it. So there's no question that that, that perspective has been hugely beneficial. And also another factor that can't go unmentioned is we try to be very radical about client satisfaction. And again, this may seem like not a particularly interesting or original idea, and it's not to anybody outside the legal profession. But inside the legal profession, that sort of radical perspective is just not to be found, except to my knowledge at Cordell and Cordell. And so we've, we've looked at successful businesses, and we've looked at the way that they monitor customer satisfaction. We looked at you know, what, what is it they do to discover what clients' expectations are and to be sure all along the way that they have triggers to alert them if there's something that the client is not happy about. These things are, are often issues that, that occur over time and that perhaps you know, complaints that exist below the surface that unless you're careful to search for them and to look for them, you may have somebody who comes into your law offices and goes out a year later with their case closed, not feeling good about their experience at all, and the lawyer not even knowing it. So we tried to, to fix that sort of deaf ear, uh, and, and we think that one of the ways we've done it is to develop those radically client-centered policies.
So you mentioned that Cordell and Cordell's emphasis on protecting the rights of men and fathers came about due to the unique challenges that they were facing in family courts. Uh, what are some of the biggest struggles guys face when they're going through a divorce? Well, the, the heart of the problem is stereotyping. Um, the courts tend to attribute to guys these these stereotypes that we all know are not correct and that would be forbidden in any other context. We know that as to race, as to gender, as it pertains to women, as to handicaps, so many other areas where we've been very aggressive in dealing with stereotypes and the adverse impacts they have in workplaces for people, employment opportunities, etc. But, but I can tell you that they're unfortunately all too present in family courts. So the way that, that you see stereotypes emerge for guys is, for example, um, the, the suspicion that guys are prone to violence. Um, so anytime that there's a, a custody dispute, a common tactic by mom is to suggest that dad is too harsh, too physical in his punishment. You know, kind of the code implication is physical abuse. Now, rarely is that phrase used anymore or at least it's not thrown about with the sort of uh, disregard that it was years ago. But still, the implications there. Similarly, orders of protection. Orders of protection are, are a device, a tool that for the most part is available only to mom, though the statute is gender neutral. The reality on the ground is that it's a tool available to mom and not to dads. Orders of protection are like this battlefield nuclear weapon where once, once mom gets it, the implications for dad are just horrendous, both in his career, in his personal life, beyond family matters, and of course in family court. So, so guys are often forced to the bargaining table. They essentially have deals extorted from them that they would not otherwise have agreed to simply because of this sort of Damocles hanging over their head. Um, other contexts are the, the stereotyping that occurs in the in the um, custody battles, apart from concerns about, you know, dad's discipline, et cetera. Others are, you know, is dad really around parenting? Judges will often give mom the benefit of the doubt if the kids are, are there with her and dad's gone a lot that she's parenting. If the shoe's on the other foot, you know, often mom will allege, well, dad's not really parenting while I'm not there. They're in the care of someone else, or he's gone doing such and such. Or, so suddenly dad is having to present evidence of, of, for something that if, if it were his wife in that position, it would be taken for granted. Uh, maintenance is another example where there's stereotyping. Uh, if mom comes in and she's been unemployed for 10 years, the courts still often assume that mom has been engaged in this noble enterprise of parenting. Uh, dad comes into court, dad's been unemployed for 10 years, and the, the judge will often look at him like, are you a deadbeat or what? Can you not get a job? And so for dad to suggest that he's been home caring for the children, it doesn't, it doesn't engender the sort of affection and respect from the court that it does when mom says that. Um, similarly, in, in the allocation of funds, often uh, courts tend to be more inclined to award attorney fees that dad pays than that mom pays. Um, those, are, those are the things that jump out most readily. So why do you think such inequalities exist in the family courts? I think that the civil rights movement, which is to be applauded in so many ways, 
I mean, we, we took on, beginning really in a serious way in the 60s, we took on racial discrimination. We took on, around that same period, gender discrimination as it pertained to women. Uh, other other uh, minorities were included, such as disabilities and, and et cetera. And, and these were all noble and, and largely successful efforts. And yet, the, the, the area of the room that seems to have been excluded from that civil rights conversation is the stereotyping as it pertains to men, especially in family courts. So, so until we have the sort of attention, the spotlight drawn to this civil rights issue that has been appropriately drawn to other civil rights issues, then guys will continue to be neglected. The fact is that there simply isn't this army of support, you know, this huge fund of resources that have been available through federal and state programs, through grants, through not-for-profit organizations formed in the private sector. I mean, there have been a ton of resources, human and otherwise, you know, devoted to this, you know, to these problems that I just discussed in civil rights. So what, what lacks those resources and lacks that attention is, is the issue of guys in family court. So it is, you might say, an orphan civil rights issue. And until uh, we are willing to, to acknowledge this problem exists, then there's very little chance that we're going to overcome it. So over the past 25 years, have things started getting better for guys? Are they worse, or have they stayed pretty much the same? I would have to certainly say that during the past 25 years that I've been practicing, guys have seen things improve. Now, that's not true, of course, in every court, but it's true in a number of courts. There have been some favorable developments in the legislatures. Um, so a number of legislatures have adopted rules that, that require judges to have a preference for joint physical custody, defining the term as a 50-50 division. You know, that is kind of a radical idea that though it was bandied about 20 years ago, the, the statutory language on the ground was often simply a standard alternate weekend for guys, though it was called uh, shared or joint custody. Now, statutory language has been changed to, in a number of cases, require a presumption of a 50-50 division. So there, there's no question that things have improved for guys in some courts. All too common, though, and I don't want to pick on rural counties, but I just have to speak in terms of my familiarity with this issue. What I think that, that, that we see all too commonly, especially in rural counties, is this, this uh, traditional role that's imputed to guys, and that works to their disadvantage in custody battles, to maintenance orders, to child support orders, to allegations of, of uh, domestic violence. I mean, that, that traditional stereotyping is, is is the obstacle to guys receiving fair treatment in court, and it's and it exists and it's alive and well, often in many rural counties throughout the country. Though what we found in most cities is that you know courts tend to be more conscious of these uh, of these newer civil rights perspectives. So, in your opinion, what is the most pressing change that needs to occur in the family court system for men to get a fair chance when it comes to their divorce? The problem, I think, is easily identified. It's the stereotyping that results in assumptions about guys as, as breadwinners, guys who are more prone to violence, um, guys who 
are not naturally caregivers or nurturers of children, et cetera. Um, when it comes to identifying a solution, I think that one, one idea uh, that I've proposed is that, is that we, we simply approach this the way we did with legislation that corrected the problem when there was discrimination of a racial nature or gender nature 30, 40 years ago. Um, the legislation at that time, you know, created a presumption that when there's a disproportionate result, that the burden of proof would shift to the party that had been making those decisions, that had produced that result. For example, in employment context, um, where it could be shown that, for example, you had 50% of a population uh, that is minority and yet only 5% in management. So by showing this, you know, these stati this st statistical information, then the burden of proof would shift. And when that shifts, then, then the obligation is on, on the, the employer in that context to establish that there was not discrimination. Um, a similar rule could exist for guys in family court. Uh, but until there's, there is some legislative and judicial acknowledgement of the problem, then there's not going to be any serious effort to correct it. The problem that exists is not simply to be viewed as one of the law or one of just judges. I mean, it's really an institutional issue. There's a lot of participants in the process. There's the legislature. So we know that, that part of the result is dictated by the law. We hope all of it is. But as a practical matter, we know that the law is, is certainly at the table of responsibility here. Another is, of course, the judge. We talk a lot about judges, but maybe we talk too much about judges because judges are limited to what the existing law is. Then beyond that, you know, you have a not, at the table also of responsibility are a, num a number of other players. I mean, you have social workers. Uh, you have people who are advisors to the court. You have the employees in the courthouse who do parenting plans, who do home studies, all these, these other functionaries in the process who play an important role. You have experts who are involved, often psychologists when it's custody battles, but it can be economists. It can be uh, a number of experts relating to health care. I mean, all these people participate in the, 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 the family court process. And to the extent that you have institutional bias, the stereotyping in which you say guys occupy certain roles and women others, then, then that's not a problem that's going to be corrected simply by, by talking to a judge or changing a particular judge's view. I mean, this is systemic, and I think that there has to be a concerted effort to address it. But until there's a concerted acknowledgement that the problem exists, then there's very little chance that it's going to be, get corrected. I can say on a positive side, though, that, that there has been progress. Uh, it's been incremental. It's not the sort of precipitous you know, progress that I would hope to see, more that you saw, incidentally, as it pertains to discrimination, race, and gender, you often saw huge step forwards because you had all the resources that, that were mobilized uh, to correct this and correct it immediately. There's not that, that sense of urgency nor that, that, that sense of, of concern uh, that could fuel the sort of progress that I'd like to see for guys that, that we did see with race and gender in the other contexts. But still, we can hope for incremental process if we can incrementally improve uh, people's uh, understanding of this issue.
So how does Cordell and Cordell work to help guys through the inequalities that exist during a divorce? What Cordell and Cordell brings to the table is an important perspective. You know, we enter the courtroom or we enter the process recognizing that there is this list of vulnerabilities that we know that, that courts are notoriously vulnerable to, meaning that they're inclined to, to lean in these directions against our client. So we know that there are a number of things and arguments that are likely to be made against our clients. So in our representation process, we begin from the outset, especially if it's a custody battle, for example, to, to prepare for those allegations. And often those allegations, whether it's violence, whether it's money earned under the table, um, whether it's a lack of interest in the kids, whether it's a drug or alcohol problem, whatever it might be, often these, these allegations are not explicitly stated. When they are explicitly stated, then of course, you know, we, we begin preparing for it from the outset. But we're also sensitive to the possibility that they'll be raised simply based on sitting on the side of the table that we've sat on now for 25 years and recognizing that, that this is standard fare in the case that is put forward by wives and moms in family courts across America. So from the moment that the client comes in, you know, we, we have this toolkit, and the toolkit acknowledges that, that there are certain allegations likely to be made. So in the early interview process, we're talking about, you know, tell us, is there going to be an allegation of, of, uh, of too harsh punishment? And we talk that through, and we start preparing that case from day one. Another thing we know is we know who the experts are that we think will be particularly helpful when that allegation is made. It's not just a matter of the expertise of the expert, it's a matter of their credibility also. It's important to know who is it that the judge respects. So to the extent that we've, we've fought this particular fire a number of times in the past, whatever that, that particular allegation is, you know, we, we know who will be the, the, the best firefighter to, to attack that issue. And another point that I think is important is that the reputation of Cordell and Cordell as this firm dedicated to you know, the civil rights of guys in family court, that in and of itself seems to quell some allegations uh, that might be made because of the expectation that we're expecting that. I think that judges tend to be more self-conscious if they perhaps may have otherwise had a tendency to sort of reflexively do this or do that. When you have somebody in the room whose reputation is, you know, our, our purpose is to be attentive to these things, then I tend to think that it makes judges more conscious of that and perhaps more hesitant to do that sort of thing. It's like if you were in Mississippi in 1966 in a judge's chamber where you have two lawyers, and let's say the defendant is a black man, and one of the attorneys is a civil rights lawyer. So I'm convinced that the judge, whatever tendencies he might have otherwise had, I think is going to at least be more cautious and more thoughtful about what he does or how he does it than he would otherwise be. So, so I'm not suggesting that, that judges perhaps have that sort of intention today in family law courts. So I think that there may be a similar dynamic in family courts across America to the extent that you have an attorney sitting in the chambers 
whose mission is to protect guys' rights to assure fair treatment. I think that judges, for the most part, are perhaps more conscious of that in their decision-making than they otherwise would be. That's an intangible factor. It's something that would be difficult, if not impossible, to prove, but I simply think that it's probably there. Cordell & Cordell has experienced impressive growth over the past 25 years, now with more than 100 offices spanning 30 states in the UK. How do you envision the firm's progress in the near and long-term future? I think Cordell & Cordell will continue to grow. Um, there are still several cities in the United States where we don't have a presence. I think that um, we will eventually be on the continent in Europe. I think that w though we're in England and we expect to expand in the UK, I think that over the next five years we'll have offices on the continent. And I think that over time we will see offices in South America. Uh, everywhere that this problem exists, you know, this stereotyping, this bias against guys in family courts, everywhere that exists, then there's a need for a law firm that is dedicated to that issue and whose finger is continually pointing at the presence of that sort of injustice. Due to your firm's success, there have been a number of imitators popping up as men's divorce law firms, that sort of thing. Uh, how do you separate yourself from the competition, and uh, what challenges do you face with that sort of growth? Well, it's interesting that I think the lesson that, that some lawyers extracted from our success is the wrong lesson. I think all too commonly, lawyers see a way to make a living and they see what other attorneys are doing, they think, oh, that looks like a very clever idea. I think I can do that. Um, and it's much easier to make a radio ad or a TV ad or a slogan than it is to design processes and systems to assure client satisfaction. It's funny, I get lots of compliments about the marketing of Cordell & Cordell because that's what the average person on the street sees or hears. And, and and of course, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that, that many people do like the marketing and have said good things about it. Still, I, I'm quick to point out that, look, the marketing is far easier than the challenges of designing a firm, of assuring customer satisfaction when, when the service you provide is one that is inherently difficult and, and unpleasant for your client or your customer. And, and domestic relations has to rank as the worst. So among human experiences, I think most people would say. And, and so we're, we're you know, walking through that process with our client. And at the end of the day, our client probably is not going to get everything they wanted. And sometimes they do, but often they don't. Um, and they often will spend more money than they wanted to. Um, and it was an, a painful and, and often unpleasant process. Now, if we can spare our client those things, and we occasionally can, that's great. But, but frankly, the nature of the process assures that those ingredients are often there. So client satisfaction is a challenge, and it requires lots of innovation and lots of thought and analysis. And, and for every, every hour that I spend thinking about marketing and ads and whatnot, I probably spend 15 to 20 easily thinking about how to improve the quality of services to assure that the chances of getting a positive outcome for a client is better the chances of getting hearing dates uh, improves at a quicker pace than would otherwise be available. All those things that are sources of irritation to clients, 
you know, those are the things we have to figure out how to fix. So our competitors, people who go out and run ads because they see that we run ads and they hear that we have, you know, several lawyers employed doing that in that city, you know, they don't get it. I mean, they don't understand that, that at the end of the day you'll be judged not by how many people you get to call you up and come in and give you money. At the end of the day you're judged by how many of those people tell you that you're wonderful at the end of the process. And the uncertainty of divorce is obviously one of the biggest challenges guys face during the process, particularly when it comes to hiring an attorney and the associated costs. Uh, how will your firm address this problem? You know, the, the, cost, the cost of a divorce is a huge issue for consumers, for clients, people going through the divorce process. And it, it's in part because it's inherently expensive meaning to spend five, 10, 15,000 or more uh, is difficult for almost anybody. But on top of that, it's occurring at the worst of all possible times. It's occurring when liquidity is so important. I mean, money's need to buy a new house, to pay off things, uh, to pay other expenses, you know, a new school if you're transferring your children. There's so many things that are going on then that are requiring a lot of cash on the front end that to have lawyers' fees, particularly in that volume, thrown on top of that 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 raging uh, fire is just too much often for clients to to handle financially during the divorce process. So we know at Cordell and Cordell that there has to be a better way, and I can tell you that following the the, the principles that we followed for 25 years, where we continually look not to our brethren, quote unquote. So I can tell you that, that Cordell and Cordell is, is very conscious of this problem of the billed hours associated with divorce. And we're determined to find a better way. And I can tell you that that, that solution will not come from our looking to the left or the right at, at other law firms, as in other ways in which Cordell and Cordell has substantially improved and, and surpassed our peers in my judgment uh, this too will be one of those ways. So we're looking outside the legal profession. There has to be a more client-friendly way to bill clients so that we can allow for the uncertainty that's associated with divorce. We don't know, and neither does a client, whether it will be five hours or 50 hours in some cases on a given divorce. So it's difficult to have a flat fee as much as clients, and even we, quite frankly, would prefer because it makes it predictable for both sides of the table. Uh, but the nature of litigation is such that, that some lawyers very cynically say, as a matter of fact, this is the standard position of the legal profession, is that when you have things such as litigation, there's no alternative uh, but hourly billing, which means you know, getting a bill for every phone call, every email, every time that your attorney picks up your file. You know, there's a clock running, whether it's a tenth of an hour or, or three-tenths of an hour. There has to be a better way than that. And thankfully, I can tell you that, that we have made huge strides in trying to develop a way to provide that sort of solution to clients. And, and right now, we have a system that we call the Cordell Cost Solution. And the purpose of that is to simply determine what we think costs will be in a particular case, looking at those factors, inform a client on the front end, make a commitment to the client. And for us, incidentally, this is a step into the unknown, so it's a little scary that no other law firm is willing to do this, to my knowledge, but, but we are. 
And we are because we know it's critically important to our clients. And we want our clients at the end of the day to, to appreciate us, to love us. And, and, and the only way that you get there is to continually look for ways to better serve them. And, and I can tell you, addressing the build hour problem is huge in clients' minds. And, and we're determined to tackle that problem. What, what the system we're using now, we're experimenting with in a number of cities. So it's not been rolled out everywhere. But if we see the sort of progress that we expect to see with our cost commitment, then, then all of our clients will see this unrolled in, in every one of our cities. Uh, but we have to be sure that it works before we do it. Uh, because if, if it doesn't go correctly, then it's not in our interest or our client's interest if the business fails. All right, it looks like we're running out of time, so let's wrap things up with this. As a domestic litigation attorney who has made it your mission for the past 25 years to protect the rights of men and fathers, what is your number one piece of advice that guys should follow if they find themselves going through a divorce? I'll answer this question the way I answered this question in talking to my brother who was getting a divorce a number of years ago in a state in which you know, we didn't have attorneys. Uh, so I could speak to him as a friend and brother. And, uh, and I'll tell you what I told him, and that was that number one is that he should hire an attorney. He should hire an attorney who just does domestic relations. He should be sure that that attorney does have the capability to litigate if necessary. That doesn't mean, incidentally, that, that he should want to give money to a lawyer to end up with a trial in court. It simply means that the probability of getting a good outcome is increased if you have someone that has a reputation with the court and especially with opposing counsel as being willing and capable of trying a case. So oddly enough, it's by preparing for war that you often prevent war. Um, so that was my first piece of advice. Another is to engage in no conduct that, that could possibly be perceived as, as threatening, as, as menacing in some way that could result in an order of protection being issued. Remember, orders of protection, 90% of the time, are not about guys actually being a threat. It's about a wife being able to persuade a judge that the guy has been a threat and will be in the future. So the facts are less important than the appearance. So I would, I would tell guys that it's critical that they be on their best behavior. And order of protection may come down the pike anyway, but at least force your wife to fabricate it from whole cloth as opposed to have pieces of information that are true that perhaps are used as the foundation for an order. Another is to put aside the emotions. Now, again, I understand it's easier said than done, but it's the, the emotions that cost you money, at least at those decision points where you're forced to decide between an offer that you accept or reject or a course of action that you could cost you more in attorney fees than another course. Always make that decision on sound logic because that is what you're going to have to live with for the next 30 years, not, not the emotions that you may feel then, the anger, the satisfaction, that it might give you to say no to something just because it inconveniences or frustrates the opposing party at that time. Remember, you know, you, th this, is a, this is a process with which you're going to have to live with the outcome for many years. So it's in your interest to be your most thoughtful, your most reasonable throughout the process. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to join us today, Joe. It's my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you.
Thank you for listening to this month's special edition of the Cordell and Cordell Men's Divorce Podcast. While guys face many additional challenges during divorce, Cordell and Cordell has made it their mission to fight for and protect the rights of men and fathers for the past 25 years. With experience working for the underdog in a notoriously biased system, Mr. Cordell and his team of attorneys and legal staff understand the disadvantages guys face in family court and have devised methods to help counter the deep-rooted stereotypes men often encounter during the divorce process. Fixing the problems that exist in the current system will not happen overnight, but until then, at least there are firms like Cordell & Cordell dedicated to fighting for the rights of men and fathers before, during, and after divorce. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for interviews, news, tips, and more covering a range of topics facing men during divorce. You can also find a number of resources on our website at cordellcordell.com, as well as our informational sites, mensdivorce.com and dadsdivorce.com.